This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Matt Palmer and Lauren Rusekas to discuss natural gas. How are both of you? Good. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks. Good to be back, Hill. Very good. And just to, to get some things out of the way, the, the way to reach out and, and to join our conversation or learn more about what we're discussing today is through EnergySense at IHSMarket.com. That's EnergySense, spelled like the podcast title. And we will be putting into the liner notes of this podcast more information uh, about our natural gas coverage um, that, that Matt and Lauren are delivering clients on a regular basis. So, so please do reach out for further uh, information. So now that that is out of the way, we can get into the meat and potatoes of our conversation. And this conversation comes on the back of, I'll say, kind of a wild ramp up in natural gas prices, which I think it, we're focused really on the U.S. in this conversation. But really, I think gas prices are back uh, at that something like eight hundred eight and a half dollars in, in MCF uh, as we're speaking today on May 17th. Um, and Matt, I'm really hoping that we can start with you and, and help to kind of describe the situation of, of how we got here and what are the things we should be paying attention to um, specific to North America natural gas? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, a lot of folks, when you talk to them, think, well, international prices are high for gas and because we're exporting LNG, that's why natural gas prices here are going up. And that, that's part of the story, uh, but it's not the whole story. And this is kind of a, a trio of things happening that have kind of led us to where we are today. And and the first has really got to do with natural gas production. Um, you know, the there, there's a we haven't seen meaningful production growth yet this summer. And so if you take a step back to where we were coming into the winter in Q4 of 2021, you know, production had gotten back, you know, for the lower 48, got back to all-time highs that we were at ahead of the pandemic. And with that, things were looking pretty good. But what's happened is we had the winter, we had some wellhead freeze-offs, maintenance issues, and, and so production kind of stumbled a bit and has yet to rebound to, to kind of those levels. We do expect production to grow this summer, about three BCF a day, summer over summer, and that should help get storage inventories in the lower 48 to a reasonable level just above the five-year min, probably around 3.2, 3.3 TCF, but not back today, to average. Yeah, today storage is what, about 20% below the five-year average and 15% below year-ago levels, or, or do I have that backwards? Um, I, storage is definitely below the five-year average. Um, when we look at it on a rolling five-year average level, it's about 200 BCF below the five-year average. We okay. expect that that deficit will widen a bit as we get into the summer here. So get deeper below the five-year average, and that's gonna keep prices uh, supported. And one of the challenges is if you just kind of said, all right, well, if production doesn't grow from where we are today, we don't even get to three TCF come the end of October. And so the market's sort of trying to square where production is today with the expectation for you know, robust demand from LNG and the power sector. And it, it's saying, wait a minute, if production doesn't grow, we're in a situation where we're not going to be well supplied ahead of the winter. 
And so there's a lot of concern around that. But I think we will see production growth. We have seen rig activity pick up quite a bit over the last year, uh, particularly in the Permian play, where you'll get quite a bit of associated gas. And then in the um, in the Haynesville, uh, Haynesville rig count is, is at a level we haven't seen in, in, a, in many, many years, north of 65 rigs running there right now by our, our measure. So the, the other thing on the production side, though, I think is important to understand is the EMP community, particularly the public independents, are running in, in this or operating under this capital discipline environment, which has, I think, throttled back the activity levels you would have expected to see given the price run up we've seen in both oil and gas. And, um, you know, their investors, Wall Street shareholders are saying, hey, look, let's pay down your debt. Let's return money to shareholders and then grow production. And one of the things that the gas EMPs are dealing with right now is um, their hedge positions. You know, there's mm-hmm. about 60% of, I think it's around 60% of gas production is hedged at around $3. And so they're not seeing, you know, fully re- realizing these prices we're seeing here. And I do think, though, as we get into next year, that rolls off a bit. They won't be as hedged at such a low level if they are hedged, because if you look at the forward curve right now for next year, 2023, it's in that 4 to $5 range. And so that's better, you know, and with higher prices, the EMP community can do all three of those things. They can return more money to shareholders. They can pay down their debts and grow production more sort of higher prices float all those boats, if you will. So on the production side, we are seeing a response in terms of activity, but it's been slower than in the past. But activity has picked up and we do think production will grow. The other two things that are sort of going on right now that are supportive of prices. Yes, LNG exports are running full out. And that's going to stay that's case for the summer because and for the foreseeable future, just given where international gas prices are. And the thing is, we've got about if you look at feed gas, we've kind of gone above 13 BCF a day in terms of feed gas demand. We think with Calcasieu Pass LNG coming online, sort of as you get to the end of this year, your feed gas numbers around 13.5, 13.5 billion cubic per day. And then in 2023, there's no new capacity coming online. It's not until late 24 when Golden Pass LNG begins to come into um, operation. And then we also think that Venture Global's Plaquemines LNG will probably take mm-hmm. FID and, and begin operation in 25. So that's the next wave of LNG, sort of it's it's 24 and 25. So we have a production growth coming and then sort of a slowdown in demand or exports in 23. That should help get the market back into balance. But the other leg of the demand stool, if you will, is the power sector. And we're getting a lot more power burn at higher prices than you probably would have ever thought before. And it has to do with what's going on in the coal markets. You know, coal exports in 2021 were up, thermal coal, ex, coal exports, that is, was, were up about 45% year over year. And we do expect a little bit of growth in coal exports this year, but there's not a lot of growth in coal production. And the reason for that is capital hasn't been flowing to the mines. Um, no one wants to invest in new mining capacity when the uh, you've retired a third of your coal generating fleet in the United States, and you're going to retire probably 140, 150 gigawatts this decade of coal capacity, which is virtually all of your coal capacity. So who's going to invest in mining capacity, bring on new mines when the outlook for domestic generation is is not that great? So that's... Go ahead. Yeah. So let me add, I want to bring Lauren in on this, but let me ask you a question quickly on the on the coal that it sounds like what we're seeing on coal is very different than what we're seeing on, on the prudent uh, operations of, of natural gas. If people aren't drilling because investors want money returned to shareholders, 
but the coal situation is not the same. That the, the, the coal companies are, are not uh, operating under the same, I guess, mandate. No, no, they're not. But it's because th there's no the outlook for coal. You know, the need for more coal down the road is just not there. So they're just not going to invest in that capacity. And because of that, it's harder for utilities right now to kind of replenish their stockpiles, which are at kind of historical lows. And so with that, when they're thinking about, can I get some more coal? Well, they're competing with the export market right now. And so they're sort of husbanding those stockpiles because they're low as we get ready for summer and then think about next winter again. And what's happening is if you look at sort of a lot of your markets where delivered coal prices and gas equivalent terms are like $9, $10 right now for MMBTU. And so if you look at where gas prices are trading, Henry Hub, just over $8, you can see that if you if you look back since last fall, gas and coal prices have just chased each other up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's not a lot of elasticity between gas and coal right now in the power sector, which has historically allowed, you know, kind of provided a relief valve for natural gas prices. So if gas prices run up, you switch more of your generation fleet back to you, you switch back to coal. Well, the reason gas prices are so high right now is because that's not happening. That relief valve is just a, it's used up. And we don't think higher gas prices will get more coal burn going. In fact, okay. we think they'll just continue to chase each other up. And that's 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 why gas prices have gotten so high, I think, is just because that demand elasticity has just been eroded over the last couple of years. Well, and let's come back to, to that. I want to hear from Lauren about, you know, how to frame the U.S. right now in terms of global gas. And obviously the the, the world is watching uh, Europe uh, with Ukraine and Russia and all the gas dependencies associated with that. And we're looking at what eight and a half dollars in the U.S., which is nothing compared to, to what you're seeing in Europe, correct? Yeah, that's right. We've been in a range of around, you know, $25 in Europe, plus or minus, and, and that's reflected in the global LNG market as well. The Asian spot price for LNG has been a bit softer than that, but still still above above 20. And I think the key driver there, I mean, you had a tight LNG market starting in the middle of 2021, just because of supply demand uh, fundamentals there. But then you had Russian behavior Gazprom behavior starting to throttle back the gas it was supplying to Europe, first of all, by not selling gas on the spot market as it traditionally had done. And then second of all, by it turns out we've kind of recently discovered by delivering well below contract volumes to one of its big German customers, which was itself Germans Gazprom subsidiaries, who recently has been revealed by the German government that they were taking, you know, a, a fifth, a sixth of their contract wow. volumes. Um, and so, and that, I think most people look back at Gazprom marketing strategy in the, in the second half of 2021 and say, well, this was a prelude to the invasion of Ukraine, where President Putin thinks that, and he, he's right to some extent, that gas supply is a big lever that Russia has on Europe. And so to help put gas markets in a very tight position, bring prices pretty high, um, you know, was a strategic part of the overall picture that culminated in the 24th of February with the invasion of Ukraine. Um, so now I think what we're seeing in Europe and the European price ends up getting transmitted to the rest of the global LNG market as well. In the US, the impact is limited because as, as Matt said, liquefaction in the US is, is producing full out at, at full utilization right now, but leads to higher prices in, in the Asian LNG and other LNG markets as well. And 
I think that Russia, and we can say one guy, Putin, sees that now Russia has a tool to do things or threaten to do things or suggest you might do things to disrupt or limit supply further. And that's a political risk premium that's now built into the European price, the global price that Russia is is using. And there's a variety of ways that's being done, but it's been done pretty successful because we would have expected to see coming into spring storage levels in Europe, just like in the US, people watch storage levels very, very closely. And if you go back to February, storage levels were low, very low. And part of that was because Gazprom didn't fill its own storage in Europe. But then we were blessed in Europe with a mild winter. And so storage mm-hmm. volumes got back to normal. They're now almost all the way back to normal. But prices have not gone down. And that's because of this drumbeat of demand for payment in rubles, which has led to a complicated series of negotiations, a few countries being cut off, Poland and Bulgaria. And then a, a drumbeat of other issues, issues in Ukraine, Gazprom sanctioning some of its its own subsidiaries in Europe. The German companies I mentioned have now been taken control of by the German state. They've been sanctioned by Gazprom. So Gazprom's now supplying zero on that. And I think what we can expect in the run up to the autumn is that Russia will use the lever it has not to cut off all the gas to Europe. Um, If you're going to do that, you're not going to do it in May or June. Uh, You might do it in the autumn. But just to keep that political risk premium in the price, make it more expensive for Europe to fill storage in the summer, uh, you know, and maintain, you know, maintain that that leverage and create a little bit of pain for the European economy, which is uh, is happening. So, so you mentioned blessed by a, a mild winter and that uh, European storage levels are, are back to the, the five year average or, the, or thereabouts. Meanwhile, the, the U.S. is below its five year average. Are there other parts of the world? I mean, I, I think the other part of that, that blessing, I guess, is to say that LNG tankers reoriented and went to Europe rather than other places. Are there other places globally that we should be aware of that, that are short, perhaps in the way that, that the U.S. is now, um, or perhaps exactly as Europe is now on their five-year averages? Well, I think, first of all, the dynamics different in that we don't have transparent data. And in the U.S. and in Europe, you've got very precise data on what's in gas storage. China is a big LNG market. And there's no data. It's a state secret. So what seems to have, I'd I'd say two points in terms of other areas of LNG demand, that China, the big buyers seem to have bought a lot of LNG in in the fourth quarter of 2021 and put it in storage. We can't see Mm -hmm. that. Um, And so the pressure on them to buy spot gas, to buy spot LNG, a lot of that gas, of course, coming on long-term contract basis, oil linked at levels, you know, quite far below the spot prices we're talking about here, but there see, there was not a lot of pressure in the first quarter of this year um, for Chinese buyers to buy spot LNG at these high prices that we saw. And so um, what we saw is some easing of Chinese demand. And then a lot of LNG markets these days are this sort of long tail of new LNG markets, less developed, lower income countries that are trying to transition from, from coal to gas as a bridge to the future and the energy transition. And I'm talking about, I mean, India is the big one, but Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, at prices you have now for spot, and there a lot more of their gas comes on spot basis rather than long-term contract, it's just too expensive. And so LNG has priced itself out of those markets. Uh, Vietnam was planning to start import uh, LNG and they've they've pulled the plug on that. Um, and outside so of... 
Yeah. Uh, outside of the U.S., is there any near-term supply growth on the LNG side to, to be paying attention to? Near-term, there's there's bits and pieces coming on, but right now we were in a period where, after an enormous number of of FIDs and a lot of new supply, you know, in sort of the period, you know, 20, 2017, 18, 19, 20, uh, we're going to a period now where just because of the investment cycle, remember mm -hmm. most of these projects have four, four and a half years, you know, from, from FID to starting production, that there's not a lot of growth. I mean, you're going to see, you, Matt mentioned a few of the U.S. projects, that's part of the picture. We expected to have uh, Arctic 2, a Russian project on in 2025. That's not going to happen. Um, I don't know if it'll be canceled or delayed, probably delayed, but it's not coming in 2025. And so the next big slug of LNG supply is going to be two things. Number one, FIDs that start to happen now in this current environment with very high prices uh, incentivizing that. Um, and that's going to be LNG coming in, in 2026. 2027. And then the big one is Qatar, which in, in the second half of 2026 starts their massive expansion. And that's when you see a lot of LNG coming onto the market. And you can see there is kind of maybe the end of this very, very high price environment we've seen. But as I said, that's you know five years away. Lauren, uh, is there a risk, though, that these higher prices right now might uh, slow down demand growth? And that so you have a wave of LNG coming at the same time, you know, demand might be slowing down is that possible i believe it is possible and, you know it's not it's not our base case but you know this is a cyclical industry that has demonstrated this characteristics in the past and you're seeing two things happen that go in the same direction which is going to be low prices at the end of this decade which is demand growth slowed down because of high prices number one and then number two all these fids and I, I think if you're a project developer trying to move forward and put your project on an fid track and then go forward it's much more traditional to look at the current market look at current prices you understand there's uncertainty in the future um, you can tell a story where there's going to be oversupply you can tell a story where there's going to be a, a balanced market and and you know and respectable prices and so I, I think you could see, in fact, yeah, more supply than we expect now uh, toward the latter half of this decade, and, and then maybe less demand, and that, of course, would lead to lower prices. Well, and Matt, Matt introduced uh, the, the, the long-term kind of implications of all this, so, so let's stay there. For, for, I do want to come back to some of the short-term uh, implications, but but I, I remember years ago sitting in a conference and somebody saying that, I mean, this was years ago, so, so I'm going to misquote, but, but basically it's really hard to plan around natural gas because of the volatility, because it's so volatile. And as we're getting, and that that story kind of moved away from us uh, at least in the u.s because the, the volatility kind of it, it became a very cheap fuel from the consumer's perspective the volatility at least within the first five months of this year seems to be back for for reasons that that are arguably not the natural gas industry's uh fault i i guess that's probably the wrong way to say it but are we starting to see uh planners questioning the role of natural gas uh, more so than they were you know, previously just because of environmental concerns, because of the volatility issue. We've seen that in the U.S., uh, Matt, and then Lauren, are we seeing it more globally? Well, I, I don't know that we've seen it. Um, I mean, we certainly see more volatility. And um, I mean, if you look back at the last decade, as you said, it, it, it sort of moved away as the shale gale unleashed a lot of low cost, seemingly abundant natural gas. And I think the there's a couple things that allow for that uh, lower volatility. One is just 
infrastructure was fairly easy to get built. We built a lot of pipelines, long-haul pipelines to move gas around. It is getting harder to do that. And in fact, in our latest thinking for the long-term, or it's been our view actually for a few years, is that we won't see significant long-haul pipelines built that cross state lines. It's just gotten too difficult, too expensive to do. And so that's an area where, you know, that that leads to volatility because you're, you're capping supplies where um, you, you can't grow them anywhere. And then the other thing is, you know, we talked about earlier the, this dynamic in the power sector where this pretty robust elasticity of power sector demand between gas and coal has allowed it's very it's that flexibility has um, kept gas prices in check in a lot of ways. And so as you retire coal, as you limit the ability of that flexibility in the power sector, that's a recipe for more um, volatility. So I think combined infrastructure, the power sector dynamic, and then this capital discipline from the EMP community that, mm-hmm. that that's sort of operating under that is it sort of slowed down the uh, rate of growth that you, you you've experienced in the past in response to higher prices. So it's those three things that are leading to more volatility. Now the movement in the U.S. I think uh, there's not really been a, a large push yet. It, I think the U.S. is sort of behind Europe in terms of moving away from natural gas and decarbonizing and moving away from fossil fuels in general. Um, we are seeing greater EV adoption, but it's still a small percent of the overall sales picture for for vehicles. Some states in the U.S. are starting to push away from uh, natural gas in in space heating. California is doing that. Um, So you're seeing electrification of of space heating, but it's been really slow and it's not sort of a national policy yet. And then in the power sector, the adoption of wind and solar, you know, there's a lot of policy initiatives that have pushed for that. And that's been the sector that's sort of been moving away from fossil fuels faster. Um, But solar's gotten really cheap. And so if you look at interconnection queues across the U.S., solar is the dominant interconnection queue request. And so I think it's not been because of natural gas has been volatile so much as been an environmental push. But I don't think the volatility is going to help. I think it'll end up pushing us further away from natural gas in the future. Same true, uh, Lauren, in Europe or elsewhere, or this in energy security concerns trumping some of the volatility concerns? Well, I'll focus on Europe. Um... I mean, one thing worse than volatility is persistent, structurally high prices. <laughs> so <laughs> you can plan for them, but you don't like them. Um, and and I think I think in Europe, it's it's high prices, obviously, but then more importantly, political consensus now in Europe, not to cut off Russian gas immediately or, or sanction or embargo it, as some are calling for. There's no very little support for that, to be honest, but to gradually move away from from Russian gas. And uh, there there was a plan. Uh, issued in March. It's being updated with something to be released tomorrow called Repower EU. And this is stated as a goal to take Russian gas out of the energy mix by, they say, well before 2030. 2027 is mentioned in in some places. Um, But what's interesting about that is more about reducing gas demand, not through capital discipline, but by spending like a maniac, a a lot of that state-backed spending, the price tag attached to the plan to be released tomorrow, which has been leaked, has been mentioned as 195 billion euros. Um, And it's to speed up and front load the energy transition, solar, wind, hydrogen, biogas, energy efficiency, all those things. Um, And and so, I mean, the purpose of it is to to end dependence of any sort uh, on Russian gas, but what in fact it's going to do, it's going to squeeze gas out of the European energy mix much, much faster than we had had thought. There's going to be a role for gas for some time, um, hard to decarbonize areas, et cetera. Um, but if you look at our projections that we had before the invasion of Ukraine and the ones we have now, 
the gas demand is on its way down in Europe, oh. and it's, uh, that's interesting. All right. Well, then, you know, to, to come back to to the short term, Matt, you know, we, we I know we got to predicate all of this on assuming a normal summer, uh, assuming normal weather. But you you mentioned earlier that assuming normal weather, we expect storage to refill, we expect gas and coal to 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 keep chasing each other up, and, and all this as LNG exports uh, are as high as they can be uh, for the foreseeable future. What are the things you know? I, I, Aside from weather, is there anything that you're watching that, that gives you, you know, what, what are the high case, low case uh, things that we should be paying attention to? Well, I, that? yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the thing that we're watching the closest is production and, and whether or not it, it starts to grow. I think, yeah, weather can affect power demand. And, you know, we already have our view of power demand for natural gas in lower 48 is up. Uh, 700 million cubic feet per day, summer over summer, already just on normal weather. And domestic demand in totals up to BCF a day. LNG feed gas demand on top of that's another 2.1. So you're looking at a you know 4.1 BCF a day, summer over summer demand increase with exports. And production in our base case is only up 3.2 BCF a day, summer over summer. And so we expect storage to get to just over the five-year min. But, with, but it's really because of that production growth. So if if we don't see production growth start in a meaningful way, it's really a recipe for much higher prices, we think. We could be seeing $15, $20 prices easily over the peak of the summer if, if we don't see production start to grow. Because heading into this winter with something south of 3 TCF in the ground is just not reasonable and the market will not I mean, it will be, a, 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 you know, if you have a cold winter, then you're just, you're really in a bad situation. And so conversely, though, if, if all of a sudden production starts just really coming on strong, you know, right now we think it's around 95 BCF a day by our measure. Let's say, you, go, if, you know, next month it's 96, the next month it's 97, 98. It starts coming on really strong. Well, just as quickly as prices can go up, they can come down pretty quickly if we start getting inventories back to the five-year average and above it in, in the next you know few months. That's certainly not our base case, but I think um, the thing to watch is what's happening with production. Because the, the other thing about the injection season is as you get into the heart of the summer, July and August, you do have your demand kind of peaks as summer uh, you know, gas fire generation gets to its you know, highest level. And so it's really now, it's typically been April, May, and early June. And then September and October, those windows where you can get a decent amount of gas in the ground. I mean, last year production was kind of slow to come. It came late third quarter into fourth quarter, but we didn't, you know, product uh, storage inventories were kind of, they weren't getting full. And then all of a sudden in September and October, we put quite a bit of gas in the ground. So there is that window at the, after the summer, peak summer to, to get more gas in the ground, but um, the market sure likes to have some assurances that we're on a good pace well ahead of the peak of the summer. And it, it's just not happening. And if we're counting rigs, we're counting them in the Permian, Haynesville, and Marcellus? Yeah, I mean, the engines for production growth have historically been, you know, the Marcellus, Utica, Haynesville, and then the Permian. There's associated gas coming from the Bach and the Eagleford, you know, scoop stack. But if you look at where the rig activity has been focused um, sort of in, over the last year, the rampant activity, it's really been in the Haynesville and the Permian. That's where you see rig counts increase. And that's because you have capacity in the Permian for oil and gas, but um, in, in the Haynesville, you have incremental capacity, you know, export capacity out of that basin to kind of meet demand where it's growing. And it's growing along the Gulf Coast, which is mainly LNG. 
Okay, so it sounds like that the American consumer can expect some relief with the, the production growth that you're expecting, assuming again normal weather as we get into the fall. Yeah, I think I think our view is that prices will probably average around ten dollars this summer, and then as inventories get somewhat normalized against the five-year average, as you get into Q1 of next year, prices should start coming down as production grows. Yeah. All right, and, and Lauren, maybe just to wrap up with you, the is is there similar relief expected for the European consumer, or, or are we still less than encouraged? By, the relief, by the relief for the European consumer, and by the way, this is about electricity prices, uh, mm -hmm. probably more than gas prices in terms of what politicians are concerned about, because the way it's a market is structured, gas prices feed right into the wholesale electricity price, and that's a big concern. And mm -hmm. so what you've seen now, you've, you've, you're going to have more state intervention. Spain and Portugal have imposed a price cap on gas, um, which is mainly to keep electricity prices from going too high. So you could see more of that and public funding made available whatever way they do it to ease the burden on, on gas and, and power customers. I think the, the danger or the, the, the threat, I mean, our base case assumption assumes that Russian gas is not cut off because it people think about it and say well it doesn't it doesn't make sense because russia is getting hundreds of millions of euros a day in revenue that's not unlike oil which can be rewired eventually and delivered to other markets with difficulty gas can't the gas fields that supply europe it'll take you know five six seven years minimum to build the infrastructure to deliver that to other markets and so it doesn't make sense for Russia to cut off the gas to Europe. But, you know, we've seen that that Russia and its leader have made some very serious miscalculations in the not too distant past. And so the concern, and this is the, the alternative scenario, is that Russia tries to use the gas card in when it has more leverage in October, November, to extract concessions unrelated to energy from Europe, whether it's on uh, easing sanctions or trying to push Ukraine into some sort of settlement that Ukraine doesn't want. Uh, and I think if that if that happens, the gas will get cut off. I mean, Europe, the public opinion in Europe is very, very far from a place where any politicians going to go in public and say, well, we got to keep the gas flowing. So we've had to make these concessions to, to Putin. That's not going to happen. So I don't think it's, you know, likely it's not our base case, but that's the, the concern is that Putin miscalculates, tries to play that card and then follows through. Uh, you know, with, with some sort of substantial cutoff, much more than we've seen so far with drips and drabs, uh, you know, in, in, in the run-up to next winter. Right. Well, a, a lot to pay attention to, and, and I suppose hoping for a normal weather summer uh, for, for many of us. Um, well, thank you both for, uh, for joining me, and I, uh, I hope we can come back to this conversation in the, in the coming months. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Hill. It's a lot of fun. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.